Well, as usual, you have uh, some handouts from the old retired professor. Uh, there is um, a translation with notes from which Christine read. Uh, then there's a one-page outline and then some sermon notes. And you would do well, I think, mostly to have the outline at hand. Uh, and it's the one-pager that begins and says, <clears throat> Jesus is unbeatable. In our passage today, we have two cases where Jesus' opponents try to beat him, and they lose. Next week, we're going to find a third case, and after that third case, they have struck out, and then Jesus takes opportunity to give his true identity, that the Messiah is not just the son of David, but he is David's Lord. Let me back up with a theme that uh, we're going to encounter. And I'm wondering if you can think in your minds, and I'm not going to ask you this week, but uh, I'm going to give two examples of my own, and I hope that that will prompt you. Have you ever witnessed a situation where somebody has very clearly outwitted another person? Or when somebody comes up against somebody and they have no idea who they're dealing with? Two movies came to mind. One was the 1993 movie Schindler's List, which was a very powerful movie about the Holocaust. And there's a scene in the, hall in the movie Schindler's List called, Who Stole the Chicken? And um, I was tempted to play it, but decided not to for two reasons. One, it's rather violent and depressing. And the other is, <laughs> we are, uh, we're planning to purchase some equipment that would enable us to do that more easily than has happened in the past. But anyway, picture it with me, if you will. You must know who took it. Who took the chicken? Speak now. Nobody speaks. And then the commandant goes and he draws um, a gun and he shoots a person in the row, dead. And another person comes and follows along by shooting that person in the head. And then he said, who stole the chicken? A little boy in the lineup watches the commandant begin to draw his rifle again to shoot somebody else, and he very boldly steps forward in the row, and the commandant comes to him and says, oh, so you stole the chicken, did you? And the boy says, no, sir. And he says, but you know who did steal the chicken, do you? And he says, yes. And then he says, who stole the chicken? And the boy pointed to the dead man and said, he did. Commandant just kind of realized, well, what, do I, what do I do now? So that little boy's genius in the midst of a great moment of tension actually saved uh, some people from getting killed. Quick thinking when uh, it's called for. Another is a case of being outwitted by somebody who's way more skilled than you are. And of course, my comparison is with Jesus in these two cases, being the more clever like the boy and being more skilled like good Old Henry. I wonder if you've seen the movie Old Henry. If you haven't, uh, the, the name Henry, uh, I think it's Henry McCarthy, uh, is not likely to mean anything to you as it does to the readers. It doesn't mean anything to them as either, to the watchers of the movie, I mean. But it turns out that Old Henry 
is Jesse the Kid, uh, who was supposed to have died a long time ago. But he survived, and he's now a farmer, just a humble farmer with a son. And a band of uh, robbers who disguise themselves as lawmen come to his house and, and cause an uproar. And at one point, old Henry is there on the front porch trying to explain to the men, uh, trying to disarm the situation. And the, uh, the band that are in front of the porch, this is sort of classic Western scene, you can picture it in your minds maybe, um, are saying, um, uh, there's trouble on the horizon, pal, uh, because uh, we want you to give over a person that we want. Well, Henry uh, stands his ground, and Henry's brother-in-law, who's the only one who knows who Henry really is, namely, um, uh, the famous cowboy of history, he says, you guys have got no chance, no way of knowing the heck that's fixing to set loose. And the sheriff, who's actually a bank robber, he looks at his band of friends, and uh, he looks at the one old man on the porch, and he says, um, your warning duly noted. And then, of course, the guns draw, and the old man on the, on the, uh, on the porch is not just an old farmer, but he is a sharpshooter and he shoots them all down virtually, and the men are all left stunned. Well, you know where I'm going with this, I think, if you were listening to the gospel passage, we have two cases today where uh, opponents come and they face off against Jesus and fare poorly. It is kind of strike one, strike two, and you're out. So I want to refer you to uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 33 again today. But I thought I would just take a moment, because for the past several weeks, we have been outside of Matthew, to dive back into Matthew and remind ourselves where we are. And for that, you might want to refer to the sermon notes, um, the, um, the ones that aren't the outline and the ones that aren't the translation. I've provided an outline of Matthew to remind us where we have been over the past little more than a year, maybe a year and a half. In fact, it goes back to the time when uh, Keith Ganser was our rector. And there are four major uh, sections of Matthew that I have recounted, the birth and preparation of Jesus, one to cha chapter one to the middle of chapter four, the public ministry around Galilee, chapters 417 to 1620, the private ministry in Galilee, where Jesus prepares the disciples with teaching in chapters 16 to 18, and then ministry in Galilee, and ministry in Judea, sorry, 19, 1 to 25, 46. And there's where he had been uh, for the past few weeks leading up to Lent. And the ministry in Judea consisted of Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, then his arrival in Jerusalem. And then I think it was Roger who led us off before uh, Lent, followed by uh, Trevor, uh, into the passages having to do with uh, the opponents of Jesus questioning his authority in the area of the temple, and then three parables. This continues then, the section that we're reading, this continues a theme on controversies with the Jewish leaders. And the controversies consist of the question of imperial taxes, which is in bold, the question about the resurrection, which is also in bold, and then next week, the greatest commandment, and the Messiah as the son of David. In each case, the temperature is going up. Jesus' opponents have decided that this man must go. 
And so in our passage today, they begin in earnest to try and trap him. And that's when we step in to chapter 22, verse 15. So that's the thread of where we are in Matthew. The first episode is what we call strike one, the scene involving the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they learn that, as I said at the beginning, Jesus is unbeatable. And here Jesus shows himself to be the unbeatable tactician, the unbeatable tactician. And then in the second episode, verses 23 to 33, Jesus shows himself to be the unbeatable teacher, the unbeatably skilled teacher. And as we look at each, we'll unpack a little bit about what's going on in the story and draw a lesson. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees proceeded to take counsel as to how they might entangle him in his words. The trap is set. And so they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Well, what's going on to this point? Well, the Pharisees are aware that they need to trap Jesus. And maybe the best way to trap Jesus is to help him lose his popularity. And so they think to themselves, well, what if we can get Jesus to say something bad about the Romans? And then if he says something bad about the Romans, the Romans will take care of business for us and arrest him. And then if he says um, something, um, uh, if he says something along the other line, then the people in the crowd will lose favor with him because they hate the Romans. And so the Pharisees are being cunning at this point, and they send their disciples to him. They don't have the nerve at this point to go themselves, so they send some of their uh, lackeys to him, along with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are the ones who are likely to want him to incriminate uh, himself against Rome. And although we know very little about the Herodians, one thing that we can guess is that they were a Jewish sect who were actually in line with the Roman emperors. They liked the Herodian kings who were uh, at least partly Jewish, who had been placed over Judea. So they come and they have words of flattery. I don't know whether you've ever heard the expression, uh, white gloves over brass knuckles before, but it's, it's that. Uh, they put on their white gloves to disarm Jesus as though um, Jesus is to think that the situation is flattering, the dialogue is comfortable, Jesus is welcome to say whatever he thinks, we're just among friends here. But underneath the white gloves are the brass knuckles. Listen to what they say. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and that you teach the way of God with integrity and that you are uncompromising and impartial regardless of a person's status. Lord, we're flattering you here so that your arms, your guard will be down and we're also reminding you that you are famous for saying it like it is. So tell us what you think of this tax that's been imposed upon us by Rome. They say in verse 17, speak therefore to us what do you think is it kosher to pay the subjugation tax to tease to caesar or not well there's the trick question is it kosher to pay the subjugation tax to caesar or not so the players are the herodians and the pharisees and they're out to get him it's worth noting a little bit about this tax this tax was extremely controversial. In fact, it is a tax that contributed to the revolt of the Jews in 70 AD that led to the destruction of the temple. 
This was a tax that was imposed not upon Roman citizens, but upon the subjugated citizens, the Jews and others who were under the screw and the thumb of Rome. And it was deeply resented. So here was a chance for Jesus, like a zealot, to stand forth and say, this tax is wrong. And the crowd would go, yay. But then when he says the crowd, but then when he says the tax is wrong, he's going to get arrested. But if he says the tax is a good thing, then the crowd are going to go, boo. So it's a lose-lose situation. The hypocrisy here is almost unimaginable. In looking at the question and how they got it, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the question that was posed by the Pharisees and the Herodians, they actually got from Jesus. The words, what do you think, are usually on the lips of Jesus when he speaks to somebody else. And you might remember a few chapters earlier that Jesus asked, the, asked the, his opponents the following, I have a question for you, what do you think? John's baptism, is it of earth or is it of heaven? And the Pharisees think, oh boy, this is a trick question. No matter what way we answer, we're doomed. So here, under the guise of flattery and under the guise of cleverness, they're actually using Jesus' skill to incriminate himself. So what do you think? Is it kosher to pay the subjugation tax to Caesar or not? And then we see that we're dealing with no ordinary person. But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, says, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin for taxation. Well, they presented a denarius to him. Now, they were in the temple courts, and uh, one of the religious leaders comes up with a denarius. But you need to think, well, wait a minute. What is a religious leader doing with a coin that has the image of a pagan god on it. We actually know from the rule of the Emperor Tiberius, uh, we know we've, uh, archaeologists have discovered these coins. And there's a little note about it in your, in your footnote. It's on the top of page three. We know what the insignia was uh, in Latin. And the insignia said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. Tiberius Caesar was the emperor, the son of the divine Augustus. The Roman emperor is divine. And there's actually a picture of this Caesar-type god on one side of the coin. Well, this, of course, is in, uh, in uh, violation of the Jews' second commandment. So again, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders is fed into, what are you doing with this coin in the temple uh, court? And uh, so Jesus holds it up. But here he can have his way and eat it in two, and that's the secret behind Jesus' response. He says, well, folks, tell me whose picture's on this. And they look, and they know the coin, um, and they say, well, it's Caesar's. And then Jesus says to them, therefore, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Well, the failed outcome is that when they heard this, they were amazed and giving up, they went away. Strike one against the Pharisees and the Herodians. In our Wednesday uh, staff meeting this week in prayer time, we talked a little bit about what, what Jesus' response might mean. And in your notes, I've given you four or five different options for what those are. And I leave, uh, I leave it to you later to explore those options as you might wish. But I want to suggest 
that by drawing this compromise, Jesus is doing two things. And this is kind of the consensus of what people understand this passage to mean. One is that Jesus is uh, emphasizing a teaching that we find elsewhere in the New Testament. And that is, is that you give to the civil authorities their due because God has placed them in power and you give to God what is due. So it's the kind of thing that Paul elaborates upon a little bit later in Romans, where uh, we should show respect to our civil authorities and in so much as they don't tell us to disobey the laws of God, we, we, we do them honor. So here Jesus is perhaps uh, being a precursor to the teaching of St. Paul. But I think moreover, in keeping with the idea of um, Matthew's gospel as a whole, that there's more likely an alternative. And that alternative is that Jesus is actually um, paying very little regard to material things. He says, this little coin here, well, you got it. You might as well give it to Caesar. Somebody found it in their pocket. Give it to Caesar. And Jesus' point isn't so much to make a comment about the civil authorities, but his comment is, okay, you want to give something to somebody else that belongs to them? That's fine. But those are material things. Give to God what is God's. Doesn't that sound like the teaching earlier in Matthew? where Jesus plays down wealth and where he talks about the importance of storing up your treasure in heaven. So I think Jesus here again is underscoring the importance of one critical thing. And I have it at the title or the heading of the translation. Last week I confused you by trying to get you to uh, find a place that was in the translation when it was in the, uh, in the notes, vice versa. It's at the top of the, uh, the translation. The bottom line for the disciple of Jesus is to render to God the things that are his. And when you think about it, what doesn't belong to God? Your life belongs to God. Your substance belongs to God. Your existence belongs to God. Your destiny belongs to God. Your fortune belongs to God. Your family belongs to God. Render unto God the things that are God's. Oh, and as for those other things, well, yeah. They're not really the important thing, are they? Nobody ever attained eternal happiness through the pursuit of wealth. As one person observed, you never see the hearse hauling a U-Haul on the way to the cemetery. Strike one against the Pharisees and the Herodians. Then in the case of number two, verses 23 to 33, it's a case of the Sadducees against Jesus and the unbeatably skilled teacher. Tactician in case one, teacher in case two. The, th the theological tempo uh, elevates a bit when the Sadducees come along with a question. Now to understand what's going on in verses 23 to 33, it's helpful just to remember what the Sadducees believed and taught. The Sadducees had a smaller Bible than the Pharisees. They had a smaller Bible than most of the rest of the Jews. They only believed in the authority of the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We call it the Pentateuch. They call it the Torah. And partly because of that, they don't believe in any resurrection. And so we're told on that day also, they brought to him the Sadducees. It's next person up to bat after the first person strikes out, as it were, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Verse 24, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry her and raise up seed for his brother. Notice the word raise up. That's as close to the resurrection doctrine as they get. 
The only resurrection there is, is the life that you live on through your children after you're dead. And then they come up with this ludicrous idea in verse 25, which Matthew attributes to them. It's hard to believe they're really uh, believing themselves almost when they say, well, there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died and left his wife to his brother, and likewise also the third to the seventh. And last of all, the wife died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, there's a lot of hypocrisy here on the part of the Sadducees. They're asking Jesus a question about the resurrection when they don't believe in the resurrection. So it's a loaded question from the beginning. And as you can see, a tacky kind of a spirit to the Pharisees and Herodians who borrowed Jesus's tactic to try and outwit him. So here you can see uh, some dubious things about the Sadducees. First of all, in verse 24, they're not really quoting the text very carefully. Their quoting of Deuteronomy 25 is off. This is their Bible, and they don't seem to know it very well. And then they go through this absurd scenario. And the point is, when they ask Jesus about the resurrection, expecting that he does believe in the resurrection, they're thinking, this is insane. I mean, how can you possibly believe in the resurrection? Think about the situation of um, the, uh, the wife in heaven. She's going to have seven husbands. Now, polygamy uh, was attested to in the Old Testament in certain cases. It was never the ideal, but we do know that some men had more than one wife. And here the Sadducees are presenting this scenario where, according to the book of Deuteronomy, if you believe in the resurrection, this lady in your resurrection life has got seven husbands. How does that sound, Jesus? Well, they don't know who they're dealing with. Jesus may look like an old farmer on the porch. He doesn't in any way now that I think about it. But he's got the firepower of the old farmer on the porch. And he comes at them right away. He says in verse 29, but in responding, Jesus said to them, he's not one to mince words, you are wrong, not knowing the scriptures of the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage but they are like angels in heaven. Oh, and regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Failed outcome, strike two. When the crowds heard, they were enthralled by his teaching. Presumably, the Sadducees, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, kind of went away with their tails between their legs. Well, Jesus here is a superstar teacher. Some of you may have uh, believed that Jesus was a good teacher. It's common in our culture. I spoke to a couple of people this week um, in, when we were doing our outreach among the, 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 the students taking exams. They were easier to talk to after their exams than before the exams. And one of the students said, yeah, I, I think Jesus was probably a pretty good teacher. And of course, you know that um, C.S. Lewis had a, a, a kind of a, a wonderful quip in response to that. So in saying, yes, Jesus was a good teacher, I'm wanting to say, yes, he was, but of course he was more. Because C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is Christ. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C. 
C.S. Lewis retorts, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that, op op he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So here, friends, we learn that Jesus is a great teacher, but we need to remember that he is not just a great teacher. He's the divine son of God. And when you look at all of his teachings, they're amazing. But look at Jesus' skill here as a student of the scriptures. He says, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he points out from the Pentateuch, from their Bible, a passage that strongly implies that Abraham and that Isaac and Jacob are dead. Jesus is citing Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, when Moses uh, appears before God, and God, or God appears more aptly toward, before Moses, and God says to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived a long time ago. And so God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Jesus is saying here, in essence, there's an implication even in your Deuteronomy, in, even in your own limited Bible, and that is that God is the God of the living. You know, as I was thinking about this passage, I was tempted and interested in asking what we learn about the afterlife from the passage. I think it's important to point out, um, and I don't want to get ahead of myself here, no, I'm not, that Jesus is not implying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were resurrected from the dead. Um, they weren't. They died, and they went to a place called Sheol. And in Sheol, as you'll see from your, your, um, your, your notes, and I want to encourage you to turn to your notes, because this is something that I don't think is especially widely known in Christian circles, and it's partly because we're having to read a little bit between the lines here. The teaching of Scripture is not 100% clear, but I think it's pretty clear. And here's the best guess of many scholars, including myself. And it's in the box on page eight. Let's give you a minute to find that. You're thinking, I'm sick of reading papers. It feels like an exam. I don't want to turn to page eight and read your box. I've been doing that all week long. Well, this box is worth looking at. A dead believer goes to heaven. That a dead believer goes to heaven above is true after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Before Christ's resurrection, Dead believers went to a safe zone within Hades or Sheol. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, after they died, they went to the realm of the dead below. And it seems as though there were two zones in the realm of the, in the, realm of the dead, one for the unrighteous and the other the righteous. In Luke chapter 16, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it's clear that um, Lazarus um, is in the bosom of Abraham. He's in a safekeeping place in the realm of the dead. So when our Lord Jesus died on um, Good Friday a few weeks ago, and he was spending 
time in the realm of the dead, he did not descend into hell, as it says in the creed. That's a mistranslation. He descended to the dead. And he went to that realm of the dead in Hades, and he proclaimed victory. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, among the righteous, the time has come. Your Messiah is here. I've conquered death. And soon I shall take you to be with myself in heaven. And we learn in the New Testament that when Jesus rose, ascended, from, uh, ascended into heaven, that he took with him an entourage of saints with him into heaven. So what am I saying? When you die, your body goes to the grave, but you go to heaven to be with Jesus until he comes again and until the new heaven and the new earth are. But in the Old Testament, they bided time in Sheol in a realm of safety. Now, there are a few other things that you can learn from the passage about that Jesus is teaching, and I just want to draw your attention to them on pages um, 7 following before I, before I close. Uh, sorry, it's on, it's on page 8. What more does the resurrection question answered by Jesus tell us about life after death? Well, we can infer something about marriage. We, know, we, we now learn that the permanent, permanence of the marital bond in this life upon which Jesus had insisted in 19.5 to 6 will be transcended in the life to come. There is no more marriage in heaven. Presumably, uh, because we're immortal, uh, we don't need to marry and have kids. So the whole idea about marrying and having kids is no longer something that's uh, important. We don't need to propagate the species because we are immortal persons at that point. We can also, at the very bottom of page 8, perhaps infer more about God's plan to redress matters of injustice pertaining to women. I found it interesting to note that one scholar pointed out that there was no concern uh, given by the Sadducees for the state of this poor woman who was uh, living in a state of shame because she did not have children and uh, brother-in-law after brother-in-law, whether she liked that brother-in-law or not, were imposed upon her. And it concludes at the top of the first paragraph, a scholar by the name of Wilson says, Jesus's vision of the future, on the other hand, holds out for those who identify with the women, with the woman, the hope of equality insofar as in the resurrection, both men and women participate in a new form of existence. Equality is fully realized at that point in a way that will not happen before then. And we can also infer something about the future state of the human body. And that is, is that uh, as we learn from the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus, he was able to pass through walls. He, was, uh, he had a material body, but it didn't seem to be a flesh and blood that limited him. And so we take on a new existence when we are raised from the dead. Maybe we don't believe in the resurrection. Kind of a tall order, maybe you think. But Jesus had this line that he gave to the Sadducees, and it's one that ought to be given to us. If you believe that, you know not the scriptures, nor the power of God. Because if God made us in the first place, he can sustain us. If he created us in the first place, which he did, he can recreate us. And Jesus' resurrection is the proof of that. Amen.